This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, we have an exciting episode with the authors of Cybersecurity Myths and Misconceptions, Avoiding the Hazards and Pitfalls that Derail Us. I'm happy to welcome Dr. Gene Spafford, a professor of computer science at Purdue University, Dr. Lee Metcalf, Senior Network Security Research Analyst with Carnegie Mellon University, Software Engineering Institute's The CERT Division, and Dr. Josiah Dijkstra, owner of Designer Security and Technical Director of Critical Networks and Systems at the United States National Security Agency. Thanks for joining us, folks. Thanks for taking time out of your schedule to meet with our audience. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. So let's just go ahead and dive right in. Very interesting topic, very interesting book. I've been in the industry myself as a practitioner for 28, almost 30 years now. I've heard all kinds of these myths and things like that. If I could, I'd like to just put out a, a general question to get things started. So as you know, cybersecurity rapidly evolves, emerging technologies and threats, what processes or methodologies do you guys recommend to ensure that professionals can quickly identify and kind of correct new misconceptions or myths? And whoever wants to start, go ahead and dive in. I'll start. Uh, education. Education. Always education. This field is always evolving, always changing, and to expect it to be static, that everything you know now is going to apply tomorrow, is wrong. When I got in the field, the internet bubble was still going on, and there was no such thing as the, quote, cloud. And so if I had just stuck with, okay, all I have to worry about are my firewalls, that would be bad. Uh, like a lot of other things, I think along with that education goes the idea of critical thinking and of collection of facts. So we have so many things going on, and a lot of the market is dominated by vendors who are trying to promote their solution. So they sometimes stretch the truth a little if they even recognize what it is. And so it's really important to collect factual information from different sources and then think critically about it before assuming that one has the answer. I'll be even more specific, which is I think a lot of people who work in cybersecurity are curious people. They want to know how things work, how to make them better, even how to break them. That questioning sort of assumptions is a really important skill. And I think that's what Lee and Spaff have said already. What we have seen in our experience is that when people make assumptions, that's when things break down very quickly. Assumptions about what the user will do in a particular situation. Assumptions about what that vendor actually means when they say their product has, quote unquote, AI in it. Assumptions about all kinds of things. And so having reasonable pushback on some of those things really helps prevent a lot of myths before they ever take hold. Sure. So question for you guys. So education, I wholly agree with that, right? Like you, uh, when you hear something, let's find out what actually has happened out there. One of the things that I have seen in particular from a few specific industry groups, financial, medical come to mind, largely because they have regulatory concerns and conditions around them. And by the way, I would add to that, 
any publicly traded company as well seems to have a lot of headwind when it comes to sharing what they have learned. Either they're unable to do the regulatory stuff because their interpretation of things like SOX or HIPAA, something like that, makes them think, oh, this would be bad for us to disclose how this breach happened or things like that. And then again, public companies, they don't want to impact their stocks. Have you guys identified that as well? Have you seen that? Because like my view, right, is kind of at the practitioner layer. Our product luckily is an intelligence product, right? So uh, we don't really have to go out and tell people, you know, outrageous claims about capabilities as far as solving people's security problems. We get to go tell people like we can show you maybe what happened if your own stuff didn't see it. And we always have the ability to potentially not have seen it, you know, so it's not like if it's if it's not in there, it's not as bad if your firewall didn't stop something, right? Like if your firewall doesn't have policy in it, that's a bad thing. If in our case, if we didn't see it, well, we just didn't see it, right? So we get the chance to kind of avoid some of the hyperbole around that. But have you guys seen that when you were researching, doing your research in it, were you seeing like instances where sometimes myths and misconceptions live on because that kind of ground truth is harder to come by? Certainly that's the case. One of the things that we address really in the first chapter is we don't really have a precise definition of what cybersecurity is. And part of that is because of the vagueness and the number of different stories and perspectives. As practitioners, we can look at this and we've often turned to the NIST NICE framework and there are over 30 different professional roles in cybersecurity. So referring to it as one monolithic kind of thing, it makes it difficult. The bit about reporting is significant because it means that we don't have a good picture of either longer term trends or more recent incidents because we don't have the data and it hurts. There are other fields where there are critical social aspects like flight safety or medical device safety where there is better reporting and we can use that to do analytics. In cyber, we have to get past the idea that it's shameful to be attacked, unless, of course, as you noted, we leave something out that really should be there, like major policy in a firewall. But the fact that people are victimized shouldn't be a matter of shame. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. It's something that people should be aware of is happening. Uh, and it is unfortunate that a lot of times these details don't get shared and people believe, oh, well, I must be safe because no one at my organization has ever been attacked. But when in reality, they're just unaware, it's, you know, whatever, an unknown, unknown, if you will. So let's shift to some more specific questions and I'll just go around the circle here. I have some questions that we've come up with that are hopefully in your vein. I'll start with Josiah, given your experience on you know human interaction and intersection with technology. I'm curious to hear your perspective on how common human biases or assumptions directly compromise security efforts and how can security leaders listening, how can they mitigate that type of bias you know, starting today? Like if you could give them some gem to walk away with. This is a really fascinating topic and one that I was not taught in school and one that I didn't think about for the first half of my career. I didn't take a course in psychology. I never studied economics or sociology. I know how computers work quite well. And the shocking thing is we only have computers because of people and people have strengths and weaknesses. And honestly, I should have been taught that in school. That's a little bit too bad. And I would encourage anybody in this field to learn a little bit more about people. We devote a lot of the book to human issues because they are the fundamental underlying current in all of this. 
To your question about biases, I think it's important to recognize that biases are a normal part of the human brain. It isn't something we can make disappear. It isn't something you can take a pill for. We can't cure them. We can't make them disappear. We just have to know that they happen, be aware, and compensate. One specific area that I've looked at in the last two-ish or so years is action bias, particularly in the incident response. And what I mean by that is if an organization doesn't have a plan, a playbook, has never practiced the plan, and an incident occurs, they will feel a human tendency, rightfully, to want to do something immediately, to stop the incident, to recover as quickly as possible. Sometimes, in the heat of the moment, they will not be thinking clearly. This is a known psychological phenomenon that you just, your knee jerk reaction kicks in, and instead of making good, clear, careful, calculated decisions, your brain just makes fast decisions that sometimes are not in your benefit. And there are plenty of examples that appear to be action bias more than clear, careful thinking. In that particular case, and there's different countermeasures, I think, for different kinds of biases, a countermeasure for action bias is have a plan, practice the plan, be ready. This is an example we talk a lot in the book about slowing down. And it's not making slow decisions, it's moving the decision-making before the event happens. Lots of people in cybersecurity talk about having playbooks and doing practice. It just clicked for me a couple of years ago that, oh, that can turn into something that looks like action bias in practice. No, I totally agree. One of the things that I've seen happen in practice is people had what they thought was a playbook, but they forgot to include a play that was for everything not included in the book. You have to have this, you know, parent play that is at least follow these steps that is, you know, involve other decision makers, get your presumably in, uh, counsel, get counsel involved just in case. And they tend to forget to have this kind of catch-all policy. So when I help people, I've been someone who has gone to help people become members of organizations like FIRST or Task Force CSERP, things like that. And involved in that is a site visit. Usually you, I ask to see their policies because that's you know a sign of maturity, right? And oftentimes I, I will go, show me the policy that covers everything that's not in one of these pages. And you would be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't be surprised, but a lot of times they don't have that page and they say, oh, yeah, that's a really good idea. Anyway, so moving on, Lee, if I may, given your experiences uh, working with the concepts of certs and you know this overall view of how people apply threat intelligence as teams and things like that, how would you say that these misconceptions have impacted the way organizations consume and act upon in threat intelligence? And then based on that, what would you say your top recommendations for organizations, what they should adapt their threat intelligence strategies so that they can avoid misconceptions about threat intelligence? So a lot of what I've seen is the assumptions that they make when the data comes in. And they assume that everyone acts just like they do. So, you know, a hospital would get data in and they would assume everyone else acts like they're a hospital data. So maybe it's the bank that originated the problem. So they have a slightly different problem as a hospital that a bank would have. It is very much the underlying assumptions people make when they get the data or when they see the event or the threat intelligence. I gave a talk once called The Internet is a Hall of Mirrors. Because the idea is your view from the internet is different from SPAF's view, which is different from Josiah's view, which is completely different from my view. So the underlying assumption is that 
you have to take it and assume that it came from somewhere and it may apply to you and it may not apply to you, but you need to think critically when you get the problem. One of the things that I see often, because I work with the vulnerability team at CERT, is a lot of discussions about CVSS. And, you know, here's the new vulnerability with a CVSS score of 10.0, run, run for the hills. And you're like, yeah, but that's only in that one system in the basement that's never turned on. Yeah, absolutely. It's a different consideration for you than the person that actually relies on that for their entire business. Yeah, absolutely. So being a threat intelligence provider, one of the things I try to point out to people, not just our customer base, but broadly, is that they should understand that like when you get broad threat intelligence like that, this is like a list of everything bad on the internet in the last hour, right? Is that relative to you? Statistically, no, it's not. And then there are factors that I think a lot of practitioners completely overlook, and they are not insignificant. So for example, a router only has so much memory. So if you're going to do, say, null routing, let's just go like not even smart filtering, but like, let's say you have to do it the easiest way possible, which is you're just going to not accept specific IPs. If I give you a million IPs and you have to put an ACL in your router of a million objects in it, the amount of memory consumed to enforce or to apply that policy in that control is like off the charts. And at some point, I'm not convinced that like hardware vendors aren't aware of that. And that's why they load every bit of policy they can in it, because the more dangerous the internet gets, right, you need to move up to the next edition of the device that has more memory, has more CPU. When in reality, if folks had an understanding of the adversaries that are actually directly related to them, and like you said, take some critical thinking and understand like, well, relatively speaking, regardless of CVE score, what is its true you know, impact to us? And that is an unfortunate side effect, I think, of kind of the general threat intelligence approach. We tend to try to promote the idea of proactive intelligence. So take an, an incident, take a probe, say someone crawled your network, and we try to encourage people to understand what they were looking for, maybe what else that actor is doing, things like that, as opposed to like block everything. To some degree, you almost need to have people come and wiggle your doorknob, if you will, so that you understand like what methods that they might be using, because otherwise, how are you going to learn about your adversary? And to be cost effective, you know, from a policy viewpoint, if your controls are limited by hardware, which they are, I mean, let's be realistic, right? You can't just put the kitchen sink in every policy device that you have. It's, it's just not realistic. A point I was going to build on, which is this misconception that more data is always better. More threat intelligence is always better. That is not a universally valid conclusion. Better is sometimes better, but more is costly. Like, as you say, like the consumption of memory, even if you're producing threat intelligence, right, the government produces threat intelligence, but it's not free. It costs people time to look at those alerts. It costs time to distribute. Even if the threat feed is free, it still imposes a different kind of cost on the organization. Yeah, and absolutely. It's the kind of thing, too, that threat intelligence or any other company has to provide services that are going to reach the widest customer base possible. So they're going to include lots of things that may not apply. If I were to be ingesting any kind of threat information, I might be worried, oh my gosh, someone's going to steal all my gold bullion and I have dangers from unintended pregnancy, neither of which applies to me. I have to be able to understand and filter 
what is valuable to me that I'm protecting and what kinds of threats are going to make the most sense. And that requires a little bit of information rather than just simply ingesting all of what's provided. No, absolutely agreed. And now we all know, Gene, that you keep your golden bars, not in bullion. So you just change you. your threat profile. They'll bring a wheelbarrow now. So, <laughs> But no, Gene, given your experiences in higher education, what's your perspective on how academic institutions and professional training programs, how they could evolve to address and correct the misconceptions from a foundational level? Well, that goes back a little bit to what I was saying about the wide variety of roles and the the definition of what the field is, we are still evolving and it's relatively new. Cybersecurity is, as an area of practice, really only about 35 years old if we look at it from a commercial and wide-scale perspective. And that's not very long compared to a lot of other areas. And the technology is continuing to develop. We need to have a better understanding, again, of, of what are the skills, what are the things we're defending against, and look at providing an array of educational opportunities. So for example, if we have someone who's concerned about protecting against malware and network threats, that's great. But what are we doing to educate those people about privacy and the need for privacy, for instance? Those may be two different roles that require two different educational experiences, probably do. But we haven't gotten to that point yet where we appropriately distinguish some of those different roles, those different bits of background. It's also the case that industry, government, others are so desperate for some talent that they are willing to take almost any kind of training. And it's not limited to cybersecurity. All three of us have noted, and it's in the book in part, that we have an awful lot of people who are going out to work for positions where they have no background in software development. So they're producing some of the very same threats that we're worried about protecting against. On the other hand, we have several employers who are doing gatekeeping, who are demanding people with 15 years experience. And as a result, they're keeping talent away that could otherwise be developed and be of assistance. So it's a complex ecosystem. There are a lot of moving parts here. And the biggest part is simply understanding that cybersecurity is a big topic like physics. It encompasses many different things. And we have to get better about necking down into specific areas of education and practice. Excellent. Thank you. So to another round, a roundtable question, if I may, when you guys were researching the book, did you encounter any myths or misconceptions that you didn't anticipate? Obviously, you guys have a wealth of actual functional experience, right? So even in the light of having all of this experience, was there anything that you encountered where you were like, wow, people are believe that or people have been operating with this idea? Was there anything that surprised you guys? I'll start with one. And I think this is true for all of us that we we thought about this very deeply for a long time, for a good year, and our thinking evolved. We kept coming up with myths. It was hard to say, we're going to be done and not add more for now. One that I didn't have on my list in the beginning that I came to appreciate from talking to people was that this misconception that security people control security outcomes. Humans have this desire for control. We in this industry believe that we can determine if the network is going to be secure or not. 
whether users are going to make good choices or not. When in fact, there are plenty of things out of our control. We cannot control when the adversary attacks us or how or who. We can use historical insights. We can have some indication of that, but we, it's out of our control and we shouldn't hold the security staff and the users 100% accountable because there are those things out of their control. So that one came to me in the writing of the book. I think related to that is the idea that many people still sort of believe that security is an achievement rather than a process. And many of us have talked about this over time and we long ago realized that that was not the case, but there are still people who believe that. They believe that if only they invest enough in the right products, the right people, the right training, that their systems, their enterprise will be resistant to attack, they will be secure, and that's all they have to do. And it's not the case at all. It's a matter of an ongoing process, an ongoing refinement, iterative behavior. And too many people still have that, that myth about it having being an objective rather than a process. Absolutely agreed there. I tell people very often that if they're looking to achieve a state of security, that they will only be appealing to their emotions because that's the only time that's ever true. Because technically speaking, they are misapplying the word as far as the English language works, because it's just not even applicable as a state if you think about it. So Lee, any surprises for you? So I started out my career as a system administrator. So after a while, those very little surprising that users are due when it came to security. <laughs> I've seen it all. But it was actually a very much shift for me. Uh, I had a coworker used to yell at me because I'd blame the user all the time because I started as a sysadmin and that's what you do. Mm -hmm. And it's very much a learning process of it's not the user's fault. If the user has a password of one, two, three, four, five, aside from, you know, that's the passport on my luggage, uh, <laughs> Why was that allowed? What process failed to allow that to happen? So it's a, it was very much a shift in thinking for me that, and I ran into so many cases of the people wanting to rate their security. You know, I might secure, I'm five, I have a five. Because again, as Faf said, they want to be able to make it an end state so they can improve their five to a four to a three to a one to, I'm perfectly secure, go team. And when that's absolutely not possible. Yeah, no, absolutely agreed. You know, users being able to run wild on systems, funny enough, when I first was becoming a sysadmin myself, that's also where I got started. I was like thrown into going from kind of small systems. Then suddenly I had to manage the system that had like, I don't know how many students were on it from Indiana University. It was something like 30,000 or something. It was like a shell Unix box, a big Solaris system that everybody, you know, read their mail, you, you know, all this kind of stuff on. And at the, around the same time, I learned about a new project by Professor Stallman, and I started to read his philosophy on how systems should operate. And I was like, this guy's a madman. Like, uh, everybody should have ID zero access on these systems and there should be no policies and all of this stuff. And it completely blew my mind because I thought this man has never administered a system with users on it. It's he must have only his own box at home that he's basing this on. Obviously that's not true. And, uh, but yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. You have no control over what the user's doing and kind of like, Josiah was saying the reason why the system exists is for those users. So if you look at it through that lens, almost anything they want to do isn't inappropriate, right? It's like, unless it's illegal, this is what the system was for. And if it's something you just didn't think of, well, so what? That's, you know, that's how it goes. 
So anyway, folks, thanks so much for joining us today. If you had one piece of advice from each of you, if I could ask, if you had one piece of parting advice to our listeners, what would that be? Other than do you buy copies of the book and have everybody read it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course, that one counts too. Yeah. I would say that one of the big things is for anybody who's administering security, and this goes with what both Lee and Josiah said earlier, is get away from the idea that you are somehow an enforcer or a rule maker. And instead, think of yourself in terms of an enabler. The computing exists for a business purpose, whatever that purpose is, or multiple purposes. And you should be in a position of enabling your population to use the system safely and with confidence, rather than be someone that they're afraid of approaching or telling about a problem, because that results in things being done without you knowing about it or being hidden from you. If you can approach it as a problem solver to make things better for people, then a lot of things fall into place and it works a lot better. So that would be that would be my primary bit of advice, other than buying the book. <laughs> Thank you. Lee, Josiah? I would probably go with uh, Never Stop Learning and buy the book. But uh, yeah, never stop. Security is so much different from when I started in this field. I'm sure it's so much different from when you started in this field. And the problems we see are always, always evolving. And some are still based on things we've seen before. I mean, cloud computing is distributed computing, and that was that's not new. No, it's not. But it's got a not. In, it's got a new name. So being able to understand that these things look new but aren't new is very important. And I believe we mentioned that in the book. So if you buy a copy, yeah. you'll read the section. Fully agreed. Mine would be to embrace differences and ambiguity, which is easier said than done. And it's sort of the corollary to one thing we talk about, which is don't overgeneralize. If a company, if a software developer presumes that everybody has the latest iPhone, lots of things won't work. Not everybody has the latest iPhone. If we presume that everybody has a PhD in computer science, well, that's certainly not true. If we presume that every employee needs the same training, those overgeneralizations sort of misdirect us. It's not that they're 100% wrong because some of those people uh, fall into that camp, but we need to embrace the uniqueness of people and unique circumstances. Thank you for that. Please let the security awareness training companies know that because if I have to dry or fishing exercise and uh, email security class to maintain our ISO certification, they will kill me. Uh, no, really, no. Uh, it, I do find it useful sometimes. And funny enough, sometimes I score only like nine out of 10 of the questions because I'll miss one. So uh, so even, I guess, salty old sysadmins still need uh, the refresher every now and then. So folks, that's all the time we have. We were joined today by the authors of Cybersecurity Myths and Misconceptions, Avoiding the Hazards and Pitfalls that Derail Us. And as suggested by the guests, I also propose, if you have the chance, pick up a copy. Is it available hard, soft, electronic? Where can folks pick up a copy? Yes to all of those. Okay. It is available through the informant.com website, which is Pearson's website, informant.com slash cybermyths. It's also through all of the usual book outlets, uh, Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, others. Doing a, a web search should result in finding at least one vendor. Excellent. And we will be uh, certain to put links to some of those avenues uh, in the show notes. Question for you guys, do you plan to attend any conferences where you might be doing signings? Are you open to you know random nerds coming up and asking for a signature in the book, If should that happen? 
I'm always open for a random nerd asking for a signature on the book. Any of my books, I'll sign them all. I'll even sign books that aren't mine. If uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'm well with staff. You want me to sign whatever, I'll sign. <laughs> right. I hope to be the only person with a signed Kindle because I'll be the guy with the electronic copy. So. But no, thanks so much for joining us today to our listeners. Like I said, we'll have all of the details in our show notes. And individually, do you guys have social media? Is it, Are you guys open to direct contacts? Should people have questions about your content? And if so, what's the best way to get a hold of you guys? LinkedIn for me is probably the best. Okay. Same LinkedIn. here. Yeah. LinkedIn. Okay. LinkedIn all the way around. So we will put those links in our show notes as well. And that's all the time we have today. Thanks so much for joining us on the Future of Cyberist podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.